0: Hey my people, how we doing today? Um, we've enjoyed a couple of uh, a days of that are like a teaser of spring, and today it's back out to the the low low twenties, chilly, some ice on the ground, but uh, we're, we're making it through. I think gives us a little foretaste of what's to come. I know everybody tends to get a little uh, bogged down this time of year with you know we just had enough of the gray and the dreary and the cold and Kids are going crazy inside and all that. stuff. I'm going crazy inside. So I loved, I loved having some time to be outside this past week. Hope you enjoyed that as well. Um, I wanted to take a little bit of time today and uh, uh, put together this podcast that might fall under the category of sermon leftovers. Something that I started last year that, you know, I preach something and I don't get a get. I don't. I'm unable to get all of the stuff that I want to say into a sermon, uh, just for the matter, for uh, the sake of clarity. And uh, I very much found that to be the case as uh, we jumped into Haggai chapter 1 this week. And, and that passage that we looked at on Sunday gives some context in the transition between Ezra chapter 4 and chapter 5. So if you weren't with us, you're, you're tuning into this and haven't listened to the sermon yet. Um, this is very much part of the story. And so I want to take a little bit of time and tease something out that I gleaned from my study um, now, if you remember from Sunday, the Haggai's primary message was uh, to the Jews was to consider your ways. He he's saying, um, take a look at yourself, examine yourself, and see what's going on. Look at your current experience, um, your your current predicament. And uh, as he, he he says that, he actually highlights that he he um, gives a bit of a summary of it, and he says, this is you're living a life that's plagued by inflation. Um, you eat, but you're never full. You drink, you're never full. You got clothes, but you're never warm. This this tendency of you have stuff, um, but it's not satisfying you. It's a frustrated life. Um, it's not so much hardship or, or a lack of commodities. It's just that you're not fulfilled in them. And one commentator said... Um, it, the, the money goes nowhere is what's happening. It's like putting money in a bag with holes in it. That's kind of what their experiences were like uh, as they were living between Ezra chapter 4 and Ezra chapter 5 as the building had ceased and they got a little bit distracted um, building their own homes. They, they they kind of put God's home on the back burner and busied themselves with building their own homes of uh, made out of paneling. And um, in the midst of this, they there it says that um, you know the 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 harvest isn't as plentiful. Um, you see a lack of productivity. You don't. There, there's a lack of flourishing that's taking place. And um, Haggai actually says uh, that God takes credit for this. He's he's actually the one that has frustrated their plans. God says, I blew it away. You went to to bring all this stuff in, and I blew it all away. He's saying, you can give the attribution to me. And this is actually a really profound statement that God makes here, and I think uh, it reveals a couple of things. God, first of all, he's claiming his own involvement and activity within the created world, specifically as it relates to the economic world. He has economic sovereignty. Um, so all this stuff that happens to them, the way that their plans are frustrated, the way that the ground's not producing, the way that, that they hope to or what would be typical, it's not merely a coincidence. It's not mer- a merely a stroke of bad luck, nor is this a simple breakdown uh, of the economic system where there's some secondary cause that we can credit being being the root cause of this. This is actually God's doing. And when he says this, that, that it's I who blow it away, uh, God is saying that he is sovereign, he's so sovereign, sovereign over every square square inch of the cosmos, that even the economy is under his command. And that's what verses 10 and 11 are sort of pointing to. He's the one who stunted the harvest. He's the one who withheld the dew. He called for the drought. He stopped the production line of grain and wine and oil and fruit. Uh, he, he, he prevented um, the reproduction and flourishing of man and beast. And, and even so much in control of this, that he limited their productivity. So uh, what, what typically you would get done in an eight-hour day maybe, maybe takes you uh, 16 hours. So God has that kind of control over the cosmos, over the economic world, um, that it's all under his say-so. And, and what this tells us, when we see God's involvement and his sovereignty um, in, in these areas of life, it shows us that we do not live in a world that is a closed system. Um, and, and and this this goes to um, what the deists suggested. Um, a closed system being this, where where God um, is like a clockmaker, where he designs this intricate clock, he he cranks it up, it winds it up, and then he walks away and let it let it, let lets it run its course. That that's a closed. System now an open system is is what the scripture teaches that God is intimately involved with the most seemingly secular and insignificant elements of human activity. Um, Thomas McCamisky, that's a cool name. Thomas McComiskey, uh says this: the system we live in, whether seen in terms of economic laws or market forces. Or natural laws and weather conditions is sovereignly managed by a holy God and serves His moral purposes. So, right there, He keys us in on something: that God not only is sovereignly at work, actively at work within these these things the the economic, the market, the natural laws, the weather systems that we have. Um, God is not just managing those and and controlling those; He uses them to serve His moral. Purpose. So everything is at God's disposal to accomplish His to accomplish His purposes. Everything, whether it's the weather, the plants, creatures, or man, it's at His disposal to bring about His mission, um, to bring that to fruition. And TV Moore, um, who, who wrote a commentary on Ezra, and Nehemiah, um, or Haggai, Zechariah, excuse me, the, the the prophets, the restoration prophets, he says this: God has not abandoned the universe to the sightless action of general laws, but is so related to the universe as to be able to direct its laws to the fulfillment of his purposes of rewarding good, punishing the evil, or answering prayer without deranging or destroying the action of those laws themselves. So God, he's saying, God has this capability to bring about what he wants to bring about, without totally defying the natural laws of the cosmos, and and this this is not a sentiment that is unique to Haggai. This is not a a unique prop, prophecy or or tr- uh, truth claim. Um, this is. This is something that we see repeated throughout uh, the scriptures. This is a thoroughly biblical understanding of our Creator-creation relationship. That God is sovereign; He does all that He pleases. His ways are not our ways. Um, his thoughts are not our th- not our thoughts. And, and He um, orders the world in a way that will accomplish His desires, His plans, His purposes. And, and this ties into here, if he sets up a world in a way that's supposed to work a certain kind of way, it ties into this blessing and curse paradigm that we see um, throughout, especially the Old Testament, um, where it says, if you obey my commandments, if you do uh, what pleases me, you will find yourself in the midst of blessing. There'll be fruitfulness. You'll be flourishing, right? The Garden of Eden didn't have to stop at Genesis chapter 3, that God had an intent to bless as Adam and Eve continue, continued in obedience, but of course we know uh, the serpent sneaks in, chapter 3, tempts them, they get duped, uh, they're responsible for sinning against God, they break the one rule that they have, um, and they disobey God, and with that comes uh, upon them the curse of hardship and futility, a, a life that was not meant to be experienced, um, because God had intended for humans to live forever and obey Him forever. And and here we find ourselves on the short end of this, where well. we'll We don't find ourselves on the short We put ourselves on the short end of this where um, we sin, we disobey God, we rebel against God's sovereign rule, and we find ourselves in the midst of hardships and futility trying to live life against the grain. And so what Haggai does as he sees this, this connection between the blessing and curse paradigm um, of understanding God as the creator who designs his creation to work in a certain way to accomplish his purposes, Haggai rightly draws a connection of causation. He says, okay, here's how all of this came to be about. Here's It's not just that God did this um, to kind of like... Uh, you know, just to keep life interesting for you. There, there's a causation here. It's because you disobeyed God, because you stopped rebuilding the temple, um, you got busy, you got self-preoccupied, you shifted into um, building these insignificant homes to live in, rather than creating this sanctuary, this dwelling place for God himself to come down and be present with his people to dwell among them and to bring everything that 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 entails the, the sacrificial system that guarantees that that speaks to and offers assurance of the relationship that the Jews had with God and so here Haggai is essentially pointing God's fingers at the Jews at God's people and saying um, you guys are the one ones who are at fault here um, this is not because God is cruel. This is the system working the way that God had designed the system to work. And so the responsibility is upon you for this futility that you're experiencing at the hand of God. Now, we hear this, like this idea that God would point his finger at somebody and say, this is your responsibility. This is, you are you are the cause of this futility. This is something that we tend to shy away from um, because we have a fear of victim blaming right so when somebody's experiencing hardship when somebody's going through a tough time well what they're looking for typically is some sort of validation some sort of encouragement right and and we can sort of pander to what they want um and listen like in the case of job for example um You read the book of Job, and you find that that Job is blameless. He didn't really do any of that. Uh, He didn't do anything to necessarily bring all those things about. Um, And so in that sense, he's blameless. But in this scenario, the people of God are not blameless. Um, and and so one of our reactions when we experience this sort of like prophetic word that points the finger at us or at the people of God, um, we start to kind of like make excuses. Uh, oh, well, we're really, we, surely we don't deserve this. This has got to be somebody else's fault. You know, a lot of the times people blame it on their upbringing or, or even sin that's been done against that person and say, well, this person did this to me and now I make these subsequently poor decisions that are, are in rebellion to God's commands and and they we look for a scapegoat to put the blame on and say well that's the problem. And and the prophet doesn't let that happen. Um the the prophet says this is on you. Th- the causation goes back to your disobedience, your rebellion and therefore because God has created this world to function in a, ca- a certain kind of way, um, you're experiencing the curse of disobedience, the hardship, the futility. The anguish of of this endeavor, and, and and what the scriptures does instead of doing this sort of, um, instead of this reaction that we have to um, not take any ownership or to not um, take responsibilities ourselves, the scriptures uphold and emphasize personal re- responsibility. Um personal responsibility. this is a big deal. um this is something that uh, this this is this is very important in understanding the scriptures that our actions and inactions carry consequences um and and, and you work this out it goes to the, to say this that your disobedience, can bring about far-reaching consequences. In this case, it's economic. God says, hey, I've, I've shut up the dew, I've prevented rain, there's a drought that's come, the, the trees, the crops don't produce like they used to. But in our cases, I mean, that might be the case. Maybe, maybe um, our work life uh, gets cursed. Maybe there's something uh, about um, the, the work that we're doing, the vocation that we have, that gets frustrated. But in other places, our sin causes social um, consequences, where, where maybe we have this falling out. Out with somebody that we had communion with. Um, there's relational consequences within um, our marriages or, or with kids or our siblings or parents. Like there's there's a consequences that can come through that vein. There are physical consequences um, if you don't steward your body. If you don't understand your body as a temple to be to be stewarded and protected and and kept care of, um, then there can be physical consequences to your sin. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be you've sinned against your body. Um, it can be something like what you've done has caused so much anguish I mean you think of the Psalms where where David can't get up off his couch he's eating his tears he has this this emotional uh, psychological anguish that turns itself physical where his body his bones, are aching, and so this can be the case with us, where because of our sins, because of our disobedience, uh, we will we will reap the harvest uh, and find these negative, unpleasant consequences—the curse of sin, the the hardship, the futility, and, and just um, lamentable experience uh, of life under the sun and and the reason for this the reason why we run into this and and it's, it's it's a thing that you can't really escape you sin against god there's going to be some kind of consequences um, because this is how God created the world to work. Um, it's meant to be a prick in the side. It's meant to be um, it, like an, an elbow to the rib cage if you will. Um, that that is like this wake-up call that if you don't wake up from this, if you don't repent and turn um, to to obey God, turn from your rebellion and, and obey God, the consequences will compound and possibly if if unrepentant, carry eternal consequences. And so God, in his kindness, has created this world to work in this kind of way where uh, our sins, our rebellion, will generate some sort of pain um, that that makes us realize that sort of the prophetic moment where Haggai says, consider your ways for us to be able to examine how we have broken God's laws. Um, and, and there's this saying that, that I'll, I'll repeat every once in a while. It says, if you break God's laws, you break God's commandments, they will break you. Okay, and and that's not, um, that is God's grace to us because it will provoke us to order our lives correctly, and it's this reminder that that our good, our 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 chief um, joy, our chief advantage, and, and and really God's glory is that we that you and I and we would learn to rightly live in this world how God intends us to live. Um, now, there are secular ideologies, and even, I would say, in liberal Christianity, you see this circulating a lot, is where there is this attempt to work the system. You try to find a shortcut or the loophole in God's system of how he's made this world to work, and you try to manipulate things to so, so the consequences aren't so bad. And in the case of of Haggai and this economic crisis that they're facing. Um, If we're facing uh, an economic issue, we may try to manipulate the economy in our favor so it works for us and not against us. Um, You do this with relationships. You you try to manipulate it. You try to um, adapt it or find some sort of concession that will will allow you to keep on in rebellion or sin and not have to deal with the consequences. And usually, uh, if not all the times, Uh, you're only putting off the consequences. Uh, It's just a delayed uh, feedback loop of consequences that come from sin because God will not be mocked. And eventually, um, those consequences will catch up to us, and hopefully, hopefully, those consequences catch up to us sooner rather than later so we have the time and the opportunity to to repent from our, our rebellion and return to God. And as we return to God, His blessing returns to us. Now, if this is true, which it is true, our responsibility lies in how do we respond to this truth appropriately. And Mick Kaminsky says, the only proper reaction to a world run by a sovereign and holy God is to determine to be properly related to him in whose hands is our breath and in whose hands are all our ways, Daniel 523 We have to learn how to live in this world that God has created. And if we want to experience the blessing that God has intended for us, it has to come through obedience. Otherwise, whatever whatever it's otherwise it's a manufactured blessing. It, it's a phony thing, it's a knockoff, it's a it's a counterfeit kind of blessing and eventually it'll fall apart and we'll be left with just an ash heap in our hands. And, and so we have to learn how to do this. And, and thankfully, the scriptures teach us. The scriptures teach us all across the board, how do we learn to rightly live in relationship to the sovereign and holy God? And this is what discipleship is about, is, is having this increasing understanding, this increasing submission to the lordship, to the rule and the reign of Christ in all things. And what we see here, when we when we realize that all of this stuff is under God's control, God God uses these created systems, whether it's the economic, uh, the the uh, the market relationships, um, church life. All of these things God uses to get our attention, to point us back to him. So what we see is it's not just that God is in the system, right? It, it's we, We've already established it's an open system. God is involved with it. It's not just closed off to the created world. God is in the system, but it's not just that. God is the priority and the purpose of the cosmos. All of the systems are all of all of the the relationships all of the activities all of all of the things that we experience in this life are meant to point us to God as the priority and the purpose of our existence and not only is he the priority and the purpose of rebuilding the temple which is Ezra and and Haggai's domain of what they're trying to call people back to right faithfulness to God listening to the stirring of the spirit to rebuild and give themselves to the work what we see is that God is the priority and purpose of the lives that we are building right here and right now. And if we want to experience success and blessing in God's terms, in God as the way God defines it, we must build our lives upon the solid rock that is Jesus. He talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the wise man who built his house on the rock, the foolish man that built his house on the sand, anything... That we build on that is not God is like building your life upon sand, and eventually the storms will come and it will leave you devastated, right? The consequences will be there. You will reap what you sow. But if our lives are built on the solid rock, they will endure. We will experience the blessing. Right. The, the Sermon on the Mount starts out with the blesseds, right? Um, blessed are those who uh, who are persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed are the meek. Blessed uh, are, are the uh oh boy, I should have studied up a little bit more. Uh man, it's blanking me. I preached this not too long ago. Anyway, go to go to Matthew chapter five, and you'll see all the blesseds, um, the beatitudes. Um, because this is the way of blessing. And if we are half-hearted um, and inconsistent in building our lives on Christ, it expresses a small appreciation for who Jesus is. It, it exposes, it reveals a small view of the sovereign God. This God who is sovereign, who is far above and, and, and um, all things, who became a man. And he entered into the system in order that we would be perfectly reconciled to God and receive the blessings that only a perfect obedience could produce, right? This is a, the perfect obedience. This is not an obedience that we were could could manufacture in our own lives. Jesus had to come and do it for us. And because he has done this, he went to the cross on our behalf. He was resurrected for us. And so now we live in him. In him, we move and have our being. All because he entered the system. And God didn't have to do that. He he did it because he wanted to. He did it because it pleased him to do this. And so when we see this, when we when we keep running into the gospel and seeing the beauty of Christ and his sacrifice for us and, and how he uh, just put all the pieces together that we messed up, we see that he's worthy. He He's totally worthy of our whole life, every avenue, every piece, every component, every square inch of our life, Jesus is worthy of being the center of it. And the last thing I want to leave you with, it's a quote from this guy that I've butchered his name. This will be the third time. Mick Kaminsky. Uh, He says this, God will be central or he will be at odds. God will be central or he will be at odds. Either God is central at our life and we experience the blessing and the joy and the comfort, even through hardship, because you know, even when you live a life fully devoted to God, there are still going to be oppositions. There's still gonna be hardship and trials that come your way. But, But in that time, you are not working against God. God is not working against you. God will uphold you. God will keep you when he's central. But if he's not central, your life will be lived at odds. It, 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 it'd be like running a marathon with your shoelaces tied. It's just not going to work, right? You only get to take these little itty-bitty steps and you're going to trip over yourself. That that's we're, we're meant to hit full stride, right? And putting God central allows us to hit full stride with Christ, and so this was just an interesting thing that I was interacting with through my sermon prep that, that shows the sovereignty of God over the economic system, right? He was the one that controlled all this, but also how God creates systems to reward obedience, to, re- to reward goodness, and a system that will punish wickedness and, and disobedience. And it's, so it's, it's to our advantage. It's to our benefit to learn what it means to live life with God at the center. That's all I got. I hope that's, you know, I hope that encourages you to one, see Christ for as worthy as he is, being the one who entered this system and did what we could not do, but also spur you on to joyful obedience. Because on the other side of obedience, there's blessing. On the other side of disobedience, um, there's futility and hardship. So consider this your midweek invitation to revel in the gospel. And I invite you to join us on Sunday as we keep reveling in the gospel of Christ, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, the one who reconciles us to God. In him, we have all things that we need for life and godliness, even the spiritual power to obey God when it runs contrary to our flesh. Thank God for that grace.